a former U.S. ambassador to Switzerland, explains their reputation for being a neutral country. Very few people get picked to be the referee. And so there's not actually a deep understanding of what neutrality means. In just a bit, Susie Levine shares her view from the embassy with us. Mexico is famous for its attractive coastlines. Ellen Fields tells us why she enjoys the Yucatan Peninsula. Venture west of Cancun to encounter tropical wildlife, Mayan villages, ancient temples, and otherworldly swimming holes called cenotes. It's so clear sometimes it's almost like floating in air. You know, it's just beautiful. People have been speculating about the lost land of Atlantis ever since the ancient Greeks. Anyone who writes about Atlantis, and there are all kinds of crazy ideas out there and half-crazy ideas, it's all traced back to Plato. Author Mark Adams reveals where he went to find it. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Ever since Plato, people have been fascinated by tales of a lost city of Atlantis, buried somewhere off the shores of the Old World. Mark Adams traveled to Greece, Malta, Morocco, and southern Spain to investigate competing claims for where Atlantis may have been. He tells us what he found in just a bit. And a former American ambassador to Switzerland takes us behind the embassy doors to find out what diplomats do to represent the U.S. overseas. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves on the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico. Its lovely tropical beaches on the Riviera Maya are a tourist mecca. But head inland and you'll find ancient Mayan temples, big city culture, folk art in small colonial towns, and tropical wildlife. You might even find a pink feather floating toward you near one of two flamingo reserves. Ellen Fields and her husband helped American expats with their Yucatan living website for many years. Ellen joins us now for a look at the Yucatan, a look that most tourists to Cancun never get to experience. Ellen, hola. Thank you for having me, Rick. So when you think about the Yucatan, how is it distinct from Mexico? Well, the Yucatan has always been a little different from the rest of Mexico. For many, many years, it was isolated from the center of Mexico by uh, mountain range and jungles. It was just pretty much impossible to travel between the two. So Yucatan had much more influence from Cuba and New Orleans and Florida and Europe. Now, when most people think of the Yucatan, they're thinking of Cancun or Tulum or the beach resorts, and possibly they're thinking of uh, the pre-Columbian sites. The big city is Merida, Talk a little bit, just in general terms, of if you're going to travel to the Yucatan, what might you want to include in your itinerary? Well, certainly the cities you mentioned, Cancun and Tulum and Playa del Carmen along the Mayan Riviera, are fabulous. And we go there whenever we can for weekend trips (laughs) because it's a great place to vacation. When we were thinking about where to live, however, we wanted to live in a place that was more where people live as opposed to a vacation city. And Merida is not only the capital of the state of Yucatan, but it is the financial and business and cultural center of the southeast of Mexico. It's a city of a little less, I believe, than a million people. It might be a million people by now. And it has an international airport, and it has very modern facilities, as well as a very ancient and interesting culture. So it seemed to us like a great combination of things. Now, when people are dreaming of the Yucatan, I think it's important that they see the big city. That's sort of the reality, and they can see the pre-Columbian sites, and they want to get their paradise on the beach, what you call the Mayan Riviera, the Riviera Maya. My experience was on a, a Cabanas Tulum, just south of the, the ruins at Tulum, and it was one of the most dreamy, romantic beach experiences I've had in my life. If you wanted to get away from Cancun, which 
is the opposite of that. Cancun is just the epitome of a big cruise resort. Uh, where would you go to have your paradise beach uh, in the Yucatan? Yeah, I call Cancun Las Vegas by the sea. There are a lot of wonderful places to go. For one thing, uh, there's a great little village called Puerto Morelos, which is just south of Cancun. Puerto Morelos. Puerto Morelos. It's on, uh-huh. the, on the same uh, same Caribbean, same beautiful beaches. It's just a small town, and it's about 25 minutes south of Cancun, maybe even less. So you could fly into Cancun like any uh, resort traveler, rent a car, and in, in less than an hour be set up in a little beach town. Yeah, mm-hmm, exactly. I mean, if you rent a condo or something, you know, get a vacation rental in Puerto Morelos or a nice hotel. We have a, a client there called Casa Caribe, which has a beautiful hotel, you know, that overlooks the beach and the ocean. Mm. You can walk to all sorts of great restaurants. You can walk to the beach. You can go snorkeling right off the beach. You can go fishing. Mm. It's a great place. And then you, from there, if you have a car, you can drive to Chichen Itza. You can drive down to Tulum for the day. You can drive to Valladolid, which is a, a smaller town than Merida, but it is a colonial city. It's about an hour and a half from there. And what would the highlights of pre-Columbian Yucatan be? Well, everybody says, you know, everybody talks about Chichen Itza, and certainly if you're there, I wouldn't miss it because it is pretty fantastic, especially the main pyramid, the Castillo. But I also love some of the smaller sites that are in south of Merida. Uxmal, which is not smaller, and it's very different from, from Chichen Itza. It's a beautiful place. And then there's even smaller places called Labna and Kaba and Sayil, which are just wonderful, beautiful places, well-maintained. And often, you know, there's only two or three other people wandering around, so you feel like mm. you have it to yourself. So these are kind of minor Chichen Itzas from the same civilization. And correct me here if I'm wrong, but the Mayan civilization was a, a vast civilization, and, and what survives are the major buildings, which are where the temple complexes, and they were overrun by the desert and, and kind of excavated recently, and that's the target of tourists? As I understand it, yeah, there's a lot about that history that I don't know. But um, yes, as I understand it, what's what we've excavated and what we go to visit are, are kind of the um, religious centers or the commercial centers of what used to be cities. Yeah, civilizations build their biggest and most lasting uh, edifices to their biggest gods or, or their most important uh, priorities. Uh, we always think of Maya as a lost civilization, but, but really the Mayans, I understand, are like, what, the largest surviving indigenous population in the Americas, and their language and crafts and rituals survive in a lot of ways today. And in that sense, Mayan civilization lives on. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. It's a, it's a strange thing that people talked about the lost Mayans because they're everywhere and they're very much alive and they very much have a culture that exists to this day. You can drive, and we often do, drive out for the weekend to explore the peninsula and go to small towns and there's plenty of very pure Mayans who even only speak the Mayan language and Spanish is their second language who still live in the Yucatan Peninsula and they still have their rituals. And what's nice now is that there's been a real revival. The children and the young people in the area are starting to learn to speak Mayan again. They were once discouraged from speaking it, and then it became uncool to speak it, and now it's becoming cool again to preserve their culture and their language, which we're happy to see. I find any time you're in Latin America and you can find uh, indigenous communities that are stepping up and, and, and living their culture with a little more confidence, it's a particularly rewarding kind of travel south of our border. Absolutely. So glad to see that because it would be a shame to lose all that. Yeah. 
Ellen Fields is one of the working gringos who put together the Yucatan Living website a few years ago. She's joining us on Travel with Rick Steves from her home in California to explore what you can find when you wander around Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. Now, we're, let's say we're set up at our beach resort or in Merida or whatever, and we're exploring the Yucatan. Uh, let's talk about a few things that people might focus on. Uh, I understand there's some great bird watching in the Yucatan? Absolutely. Um, I, I'm not a big bird watcher, but I have read and heard that there's a lot of, well, a lot of birds come to winter in the Yucatan, and there's a lot of water elements. So there's everything from flamingos. There's quite a, an assortment, and a lot of people now are stepping up to become bird guides and to bring tourists mm-hmm. around so that they can see the birds. I should point okay. out, too, that probably if you're bird watching, you wouldn't necessarily go to the Mayan Riviera. You'd probably go to the Yucatan Gulf Coast which is the coast of Yucatan above Merida, north of Merida. That is the coast on the Gulf of Mexico. Also for diving, I mean, the, when I was in that area, the, the barrier reef there is one of the biggest in the world. Incredible visibility. Uh, the water's so nice. Yeah, we've, I never know what the past tense of dive is. We've dove in other places around the world, and we, the diving off of the Mayan Riviera is as good as anything we've seen. It's beautiful. Cozumel is a great place to go to dive. You can also dive in cenotes, which are freshwater holes that dot the Yucatan Peninsula. And I have not done it myself because I'm a little claustrophobic. You live in the Yucatan and you haven't swum in a cenote? That was the most beautiful swimming experience I've had in my my entire life. No, no, no. I've swum in them. God, because you've got to do a cenote. That's the most important thing when you go to the uh, to go to a cenote. Yeah, there's cenotes are fabulous, and they're all over, and it's fun to discover new ones. And it's like swimming in um, sparkling water. Yes, and in fact, it's so clear sometimes it's almost like floating in air. You know, it's just beautiful. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Ellen Fields, and she produces a, a very helpful website. It's called YucatanLiving.com helping people, whether they're travelers or expats, learn more about uh, the Yucatan from her experience. And she's lived there for about 10 years. Uh, What's your advice for getting off the beaten path, using a resort as a springboard? The first thing I would do is rent a car. Rent a car and keep an open mind and bring water because it's hot. So I would rent a car and I would probably drive out to Valladolid because it's the closest city to the Mayan Riviera that's a colonial city. And it has really great restaurants. The Maison de la Marquise is right downtown. It's this beautiful, old kind of Hispanic building with a central courtyard and a fountain in the middle. And the food is very traditional Yucatecan food. We haven't talked about that, but the food in Yucatan is delicious Mm. and unlike anything else in Mexico. And uh, then you can walk around the square. You can look in the big cathedral there. You can go to a few beautiful shops. Um, Valladolid is becoming quite the interesting city. There's a place there called Casa de los Venados, which is a private home that is open to the public, I think, every morning at 10. It's owned by a couple originally from Chicago, and they spent their lifetime collecting Mexican arts and crafts. Their house is full of this. What about going from the the great cities and the great sites and the great beach uh, resorts to just finding a little village, just a tiny little village where you you really can venture in? Is, Is that an option? Absolutely. Um, one of the things we like to do is go from Valladolid then back to the Mayan Riviera to Tulum. And along that road are four or five little villages that you drive through. 
and there's people there selling the things that they've made. You can stop and get a fresh juice or a taco and see how the people are living. In a small village in the Yucatan, there's not there's usually not a restaurant, there's not a hotel, there's nothing that you can do there other than maybe go visit the church if it's open, sit in the park, and, you know, if you're a photographer, you can have a great time. You come home after a beautiful uh, experience side-tripping like that and you, and you want some local music. What's the folk music in the Yucatan? First of all, the Yucatan was famous around the beginning of the 20th century for its music. It's called Trova, and it was famous all over the world at that time. So trova is still sung and performed throughout Merida. There's probably no night when you couldn't go find somebody playing that kind of music. The men who are the trovadores gather in the square, and you can just go up to them and have them play a few songs for you, or you can ask them to come to your house and play for a certain amount per hour. Anyway, they are there in groups of twos and threes. So that's the traditional Yucatecan music. Wow, there's so much to learn and experience and enjoy in the Yucatan. Thanks again, Ellen, and and best wishes. Thank you so much, Rick. Mark Adams reveals what he found looking for the legendary sunken city of Atlantis in just a bit. Up next, the former U.S. ambassador to Switzerland, Anne Lichtenstein, tells us what she and her staff did to represent American interests in Europe. It's travel with Rick Steves. Switzerland is one of the best organized, most affluent, and best educated corners of Europe. It's got a unique quality of life and a unique form of government. It's a country that's long intrigued me, and today I'm joined by a former U.S. ambassador to Switzerland and Liechtenstein, Susie Levine. And she's going to join us today to get some of our questions answered. Susie, thanks for being with us. It's such an honor to be here, Rick. Thank you. I'm talking to a former ambassador. Am I supposed to say Susie or your... your... You know, I'll have the title of ambassador until I die, but I'm always Susie. Okay. But thank you for your service. And tell me, first of all, in a nutshell, what's the job description of an ambassador? The paramount duty of an ambassador really is to keep American citizens safe. That's, if you do nothing else, the most important thing to do. The good news is in Switzerland, that's relatively easy, except for a lot of those real adventure travelers who are like, yes, let's go squirrel suit jumping. That's a little bit harder to keep them safe. You must get uh, calls at the embassy of some American hot dog out there that did something really uh, dangerous and, and regretted it. Well... Sadly, some of the saddest calls were actually not from them regretting it, but from their families because Switzerland's very permissive in what they allow. And there were some of the most famous adventure travelers who unfortunately did perish while I was there. uh, And we did need to work through those logistics and situations. That That would be a dimension of your work because you were serving in Switzerland. If somebody was serving in a a different country, obviously they'd have a different kind of... uh, What's on the list to do today? Absolutely. So that's the paramount duty. Mm -hmm. But I think about ambassadorships and our relationships with countries, sort of three different levers. One is economic relationships. Mm -hmm. Another is political relationships. And another is security relationships. Mm -hmm. And each country has each of those different elements dialed to different levels. And in Switzerland, the economic dial is really turned up high. Our economic relationship is very, very strong, and we have a lot of economic ties. And our political and security dials are really more 
to third-party countries. So how do we partner together to impact other countries uh, and other parts of the world? And so the specifics that I focused on during my time there, first and foremost, American Citizen Services, but also our economic relationship, and then how do we collaborate together to make the world a better place? And in addition to that, we did a lot in terms of our shared values uh, around diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how to build tighter relationship between the United States and Switzerland and Liechtenstein in those dimensions as well. Wow. We've got a lot to talk about. Yeah. Now, your story, uh, how did you become ambassador to Switzerland? How long did you serve and who were you serving under? Right. Well, I started my service in 2014 under President Obama, and I served until the end of his term, uh, 2017. And I came to it, about a third of our ambassadors are non-career ambassadors. Two-thirds are career foreign service officers. And I had a long career in technology and in the nonprofit realm and also as a stay-at-home mom. I got on the radar of the Obama team being very involved in his election and then staying involved when he became president and doing a lot of outreach and engagement. And when this opportunity came, his team asked me if I would serve, and I was humbled and honored to do so. So do you remember what it was like on your first day? You're ready to go, the office is set up, and here you are representing the United States and our interests in the beautiful country of Switzerland. What was going through your mind? What, what did you aspire to accomplish? Oof. As ambassador, the moment that you set foot or set body in the country, you are on. So the minute I landed, I was on. I remember driving up to the residence and meeting the Marines who were all lined up in their official posts to welcome me and to some of the key staff members. And it was surreal. It was unbelievable. Even at the airport, the airport experience was surreal. As ambassador, you're a four-star general equivalent, and you're the highest-ranking member of the U.S. government always, except for the president, in the country. So there's a, a, a pecking order in the hierarchy of uh, these rituals and formalities and so on, and an ambassador is right there with the four-star general? Correct. As such, given the role that the United States plays in Switzerland or in pretty much any country, you are quite the dignitary when you arrive. And so even the arrival process coming into the airport was pretty special in terms of being greeted at the plane. That must be, when you being, go anywhere, it's just like, ladies and gentlemen, the well, ambassador of the United States. It was wild. It was kind of be, being taken down to the tarmac, being, right. um, you know, scurried off in a vehicle to a special welcoming. So it was incredible and surreal. And, you know, we, we live in the Pacific Northwest here, <laughs> Rick, right? It's very low key. We're fancy when our plaid matches our Gore-Tex, right? Yeah. <laughs> And so all of a sudden to be in this environment was incredibly humbling. Yes, I bet. And then in addition to that, Switzerland is very special in how low-key and modest it is. Mm -hmm. So fancy and garish has no place there. No. But that must have been kind of refreshing for you because you're from the Northwest and that's a similar sort of style. It was perfect. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Susie Levine. She's a former U.S. ambassador to Switzerland and Liechtenstein. She's joining us today on Travel with Rick Steves to talk about her experience as a diplomat in the world's most famously neutral country. Susie, when you finally got over all of the welcome to the new ambassador and so on, you sat down, what was expected of you from the people of Switzerland? What were they hoping to get out of their relationship with you? 
first and foremost, it's to steward the relationship and have a channel of conversation with the United States. You just now mentioned Swiss neutrality. Mm-hmm. When you're a little kid in the United States and you're having a game of dodgeball or something like that, right, you pick teams and you're on team A or you're on team B. Very few people get picked to be the referee. Uh-huh. And so there's not actually a deep understanding of what neutrality means. And the service that they provide there is profound to our country. They are, the Swiss are our protecting power in Iran. At the time, they were our protecting power with Cuba. And now they are protecting power with Syria. And what that means and the service that they provide, they are essentially functioning in keeping American citizens safe in, in those places. Where you don't where the United States exactly. doesn't have good relations. Exactly. Like when I went to Iran to film there, yeah. we couldn't we didn't deal directly with Iran. We dealt with Pakistan. Right. Apparently because Pakistan had that relationship with Iran to deal with people Iran didn't want to deal directly with. There you go. And so if God forbid something had happened to you when you were there, yeah. it would have been the Swiss who would have been the liaison for the U.S. government to determine your whereabouts and what's happening. And they provide that service and support for us today. And so enemies on both sides of a conflict appreciate to have that neutral ground. Exactly. And so part of what I believe the Swiss wanted from me was the opportunity to help the United States understand the value proposition of neutrality. Uh Uh-huh. Meaning... How can people recognize that we aren't going to always agree with the Swiss and that that's okay? And not just okay, but it's actually really important in order to validate their neutrality. And then in addition to that, to be able to identify ways for them to engage even when uh, it doesn't make sense for them to engage from a non-neutral perspective. Let me give you an example. When the United States was in heavy battle against ISIS in Syria, ah, yes. they created a coalition against ISIS. Uh-huh. The Swiss don't join coalitions. They're not in NATO. They're not in the EU. They don't join coalitions. They are a partner to NATO, but they are not in NATO. What we were able to do is to find a way for them to engage, but not militarily. They were able to fund the demining of the towns that had been reclaimed as the United States and its coalition partners retook those so that Syrian citizens and civilians could safely re-enter their hometowns like Raqqa. And so it was, how could I be a diplomat sort of bi-directionally? Is is an analogy how the ACLU defends civil liberties, sometimes even in a way that offend me, because the ACO will stand up for something in a principled matter, even because they have something more fundamental they're protecting, which is civil liberties. But they're very, they need to validate their legitimacy for people on all sides of an issue. It is. That is a really valid analogy where it may make some people uncomfortable. And that discomfort is something that is actually very important for the role that they play. So let's hear it for neutrality in the countries yes. that, that, that annoy us because they're so darn neutral. Right. They're providing now, a service. At the same time, to their credit, with regards to Ukraine and Russia, there are times when they're like, you know what? 
that is just not okay and is against the human rights and is against this principle. They are members of the UN. They were actually one of the more recent member joiners to Mm. the UN, and they are now sitting on the UN Security Council, which is very special. They just joined it this year. This is good. And as you say, they earned their credibility because they are so neutral. Exactly. The other really unique aspect you talked about in your introduction, Switzerland's very unique political structure. Mm -hmm. Switzerland is a federal direct democracy. So here in the United States, there are 27 states that have some form of direct democracy, and that is referenda or initiatives. Mm -hmm. Imagine that on a national level. Mm. And it doesn't actually take that much. It takes 100,000 signatures to actually bring an initiative to a national vote. And they vote four times a year. So coming into my position, there had just been a situation where something that the government wanted was overturned through a referendum. And it was an important lesson of, wow, the people are really an important fourth pillar of government here. And it's really important to build a relationship with the people of Switzerland. And so a large part of my effort was getting out and about and really getting to know people and connecting with them. So, for example, I was invited to go do a tweet beer in in Kor, in, in Grabunden. Uh-huh. I went and they were shocked. They're like, what? She's accepting our invitation to a tweet beer? What, what is a tweet beer? It is that on Twitter, people would meet and uh, identify a time and a place to okay. go have a beer and then go to that place. And, and the American so, ambassador shows up. There you go. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Susie Levine. If you're having a tweet beer, you can find Susie on Twitter by searching for Susie Levine. That's spelled S-U-Z-I-L-E-V-I-N-E. Susie is the former U.S. ambassador to Switzerland and Liechtenstein, serving under President Obama. She joins us today to talk about the importance of ambassadors and just what ambassadors do. Susie, you mentioned uh, a third are one way and two-thirds are uh, another way, uh, kind of alluding to this notion that I have that many ambassadors are are just big donors and they're chums of somebody who wins an election and they get sent to Norway because they always wanted to be the ambassador of Norway. And they don't even know anything about Norway, but they're just fancy people with fancy friends and, yeah, you can have this ambassadorship. Other people are professional career diplomats that really know what's going on. I had the great honor of having dinner with the ambassador in Bulgaria in a complicated corner of the world. And man, oh man, I gained a respect for the importance of having people who really speak the language, have an empathy with the people, have, have, have a long-standing connection with that culture so they can help out. What is your take on that balance between giving ambassadorships as presents? Uh, some ambassadors have a, a real agenda some ambassadors don't even believe in the United Nations, depending on who the president is. How big of an issue is that? I've had people say, Rick, relax about that's a certain amount of corruption, but there's these, the staff is there that provides the consistency and the know-how, and the ambassador can just be, you know, for fancy ga- engagements and this kind of thing. What are, what are your thoughts about that whole issue? I appreciate you basically bringing up the elephant in the room, mm-hmm. uh, for one. Let me first start by complimenting the foreign service officers, and the local staff. In our embassy of 100, more than half of our staff were actually local staff. And they end up being the institutional knowledge because they do not rotate every three and a half years like the foreign service staff do. And they are exceptional. And I have such deep appreciation for the people who choose as their full careers a life of public service. 
They are amazing. And I can't speak highly enough. And if somebody is thinking about that, they should go down that path. And people can join the Foreign Service until they're 55. And I actually had people, one, my head of public affairs had done PR for IBM. I had somebody in my security office who had been at Priceline and other people who had had other careers. And they're like, you know what? I'm going to now shift. A lot of people actually on my staff started after 9-11. They were inspired to serve. And that's the path that they chose. The purpose of individuals who come with different career backgrounds Mm -hmm. is that they bring other relationships to the table and can enhance the overall diplomatic value. I, for example, had worked in business and built a lot of business partnerships, which really helped with Mm. the biggest success that I had, which was helping Swiss companies bring their apprenticeship models to the United States. And I wouldn't have been able to do that had I not learned about building business partnerships at Microsoft and at Expedia and also in starting a couple of nonprofits. So I believe that a deep blend between the two of the career and non-career is very complementary. And you have fantastic folks who have served as career and you have people who need some management development skills in career. And you have people who are fantastic in the non-career space as well as some people who perhaps need some better support and development. Former Ambassador Susie Levine is telling us about her tenure to Switzerland right now on Travel with Rick Steves. She represented American interests in Bern from 2014 to 17 during the Obama administration. We have a link to her Twitter postings and Wikipedia page with the notes for this week's show. You'll find that at ricksteves.com radio. Susie Levine, I thought a lot during four years of President Trump's uh, time of the the ideals of America and how they inspire people who love democracy around the world. And to me, those ideals are even bigger than our country. They shine on a hill regardless of what's going on in the United States. That is what freedom is all about. Amen. And when we pull out of uh, our the family of nations for whatever reason, politically, some people just want to build up the walls and hunker down and that's all they want to do. You know, that's their thing. Did you feel that the world missed America when we pulled out of our relationships in organizations like the United Nations? And so I think on? it's even more damaging than that, Rick. Mm-hmm. I think it's not just that they missed us. It's that they now don't trust us. And it is not going to take just this administration but multiple administrations to rebuild that trust because people don't know if they cut a deal, are they going to stay in that deal? Yeah. When you look at TPP, which was the Trans-Pacific partnership, where that actually could have conceivably addressed some of the issues with regards to China that we're facing today, pulling out of that really was very damaging to our efforts on that front or the JCPOA, the agreement with regards to Iran. Pulling out of that was very damaging to our position internationally. But this administration, the Biden administration, is working hard to rebuild that, putting great people in place and taking great pains to restore that trust and hopefully in partnership with Congress can identify where there needs to be some codification of some of these efforts to make sure that they are not subject to the vagaries of political wins. Wow. Well, that that credibility, that consistency is, is probably an underrated value of our diplomatic staff. And thank goodness for people who are driven for a passion for democracy and freedom and the American values Absolutely. that serve us uh, both as ambassadors and as part of your staffs around the world. Susie Levine, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your service. Let's get together again and talk more about traveling in Switzerland. Awesome. Looking forward to it. 
Mark Adams journeyed to three continents to search for the legendary sunken city of Atlantis. He tells us where he thinks it might have been next on Travel with Rick Steves. Where could it be? Some say it's submerged off the Greek island of Santorini, or maybe Malta. Others think it's in southern Spain, or buried by the desert in Morocco. The legend of Atlantis even inspired Donovan to write a catchy song that I liked as a kid. Hail Atlantis, way down below the ocean. Today, amateur explorers continue a search that started thousands of years ago around the Mediterranean, hoping for evidence that might turn out to be the lost city or island or continent of Atlantis. Mark Adams follows their leads and tells us what he found in his book, Meet Me in Atlantis. Mark, welcome back to Travel with Rick Steves. Thanks for having me. So do you remember that Atlantis song by Donovan? <laughs> I do. I do. I know I came across the lyrics many times while working on this book. I bet you did. Some people search for Bigfoot and others are into <laughs> UFOs and a lot of people are looking for Atlantis. If somebody actually discovered Atlantis, what would it look like? Well, they would need to find two things. They would need to find an island that is sort of a circular shape because uh, the person who came up with the story of Atlantis, who was actually the philosopher Plato, arguably the greatest thinker in Western civilization, said it was a three-ringed city. And the second clue is it was located opposite the Pillars of Hercules. So you would have to find a three-ringed city opposite something that in antiquity, you know, before the birth of Christ, was known as the Pillars of Hercules. Now, the Pillars of Hercules are the Rock of Gibraltar and then a similar rock on the other side in Morocco. Isn't that right? Well, you know, that's what I thought when I first started the book as well. But it turns out there are various pillars of Hercules throughout the Mediterranean, okay. such as the, the Straits of Messina. There are some spots, you know, at the southern end of the Peloponnesus in Greece that were called the pillars of Hercules at one time. Okay. But more or less, yes, the, the ones that mm -hmm. are between Spain and Morocco are the best known. You mentioned Plato. Now, Plato was the Greek philosopher several centuries before Christ. And he, yes. he's not a, a nut job. I mean, he was a very thoughtful guy. And he actually described this like he knew about it. Well, what's the whole rationale for that? Did he just dream it up or did he claim to actually know it? That's the weird part that really sucked me into this story. You know, Plato writes The Republic, which is his most famous book. And then his next book is a book called The Timaeus. The Timaeus is his attempt to use mathematical logic to explain the cosmos. And keeping in mind, this is almost 2,000 years before the first telescope is invented. So he's riffing on this. And in between those two, he comes up with this story of Atlantis, part one. After the Timaeus, after he's talking about, you know, the, the harmony of the spheres and, you know, the divine craftsmen and all this stuff... He comes back to the story again in a second dialogue, and this time he gives all this information that, you know, it almost sounds like a, a travel guidebook. You know, he describes so the he island it, and what in it's... in two different books. Two different dialogues, yeah. He told it once, and then he came back to it again in the Timaeus and then in a dialogue called the Critias. You know, if he had just done it in the Timaeus, I think people would say, yeah, he made this up for, you know, right. whatever purpose or whatever. But he had an agenda here. He, he wanted people to know about this. Well, he definitely wanted people to think about it because, like I said, there is so much detail that, you know, it's almost like a treasure map. You can't help but start to think about, well, where could this have been? And because Plato is, is sort of an obscure writer, you have to decode it. He, he doesn't just come out and say things. He kind of hints at them. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I mean, either it's real and he had a legitimate agenda or he was just playing a prank on us and he's still laughing at us 2,500 years later. Or maybe it's somewhere in between. 
he had a famous statement in, I think it was the Republic, where he said, you know, there are things that are true and there are things that are not true, but there are also things Ah. that are true and untrue. When we look at the famous picture of, what is it, Plato and Aristotle in the School of Athens by Raphael at the Vatican, Plato's holding a book. Is that the Timaeus? He's holding the Timaeus, exactly. In the Middle Ages and shortly thereafter in the Renaissance, that was his most famous work, you know, because it was so influential on things like, you know, early Christian thought. So anybody who's been to the Vatican to see the Raphael rooms, they've looked at Plato holding the Timaeus, and in there he describes Atlantis. So this is kind of a, a treasure hunt for the for the ages, and Plato gave us some clues, and smart people have been searching for this uh, for centuries, literally. Yep. And your book lays out the four likely locations. Agadir, which is near the Atlantic coast in Morocco. Malta, which has, has got a lot of ancient uh, history and vanished population and all that sort of thing. Santorini, which is the lip of a, of a crater from a volcano, which is very thought-provoking. And southern Spain. Uh, let's talk about each one of these just a little bit, why they would be a possible location for Atlantis. First, let's go down to Agadir, which is, uh, isn't that a resort now in the Atlantic coast in Morocco? Yeah, Agadir itself is a, is a resort very popular with French tourists. The old city was, in fact, destroyed in an earthquake and flood, sort of the same language that Plato used, in 1960. So it's all brand new, mm-hmm. you know, downtown, sort of a conch-shaped beach there. The reason why Agadir is a possibility is because it is outside the Pillars of Hercules if you put them at the Strait of Gibraltar. Mm-hmm. It does have that history of being destroyed by earthquakes and floods. Mm-hmm. And there are certain geological structures in the area that have that sort of ring shape that I mentioned earlier. Those three rings, concentric rings, that would be sort of the universal symbol of Atlantis, wouldn't it? That, that's sort of like the number one thing that it, an archaeologist would be looking for. So if you stumble onto that, you're getting warmer. <laughs> right, right, which is why people tend to focus on Santorini in Greece, because it has that sort of unique circular bowl shape, because it was a volcano right. that around 1600 BC blew sky high. I think it's the biggest known eruption, not in recorded history, but that we have evidence for, you know, pottery shards for and that yeah. sort of thing. And, you know, because it was so close to both Egypt and what I, I guess at that time was the Mycenaean Empire of Greece, There is thinking that Plato mentions that one of his ancestors went to Egypt, may have gotten this story from one of the temples down there. Hmm. There's thinking that perhaps this explosion was so big that the Egyptians saw it and there may have been refugees from Santorini and this was all brought together and put into some sort of oral history that was passed down to Plato. Ah, some sort of an amazing city that once existed and no longer was there. Exactly, exactly. The explosion that left Santorini just the lip of a crater in the Mediterranean Don't they think that was the, uh, well, could have wiped out the Minoan civilization on nearby Crete? Yeah, it would be the same thing. And then on Santorini, we've discovered this Akrotiri, this wonderful ancient ruined site that dates back to that second millennium BC, doesn't it? And the discovery of Akrotiri, which is phenomenal, and they've only uncovered like 3% of it, I believe. I met the the head of archaeology down there and I said, what what do you expect to find in your lifetime? And he's like, you know, I've been digging here for 50 years. (laughs) My theories could all be disproven the day after I die because there's so much here we just yeah. don't know. And it, that was actually found because uh, a guy named Mavor from the, the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute went to Santorini and started getting people together saying, hey, you know, there are all these clues for Atlantis, there's Plato, and there's another fellow in Athens named Galanopoulos. And they sort of started pushing, and this famous Greek archaeologist named Marinatos came in and said, well, let's just, you know, start digging and see what we find. And they found... 
Akrotiria. I think the ash from the volcano was like 50 feet deep or something, and they found a small passageway that led down into a room where all the walls were fresco. So it was just it was oh, one of the great incredible. discoveries of yep. the 20th century. One way or another, uh, whether, you, whether you're looking for Atlantis or not, when you're in Santorini, you should be looking for <laughs> yeah. Akrotiria. It's really great. Mark Adams is the author of Meet Me in Atlantis, in which he tracks down clues left by Plato and a bevy of obsessive amateur investigators. Mark also writes about an eye-opening 3,000-mile trip along the Alaska Marine Highway in Tip of the Iceberg. His other titles include Mr. America and Turn Right at Machu Picchu. His website is markadamsbooks.com. Okay, so Mark, we got Santorini, we got Agadir in Morocco, and by the way, when you think of those pillars of Hercules, in the ancient mindset, uh, the Mediterranean was the, the center of the world, really, and then you got to the rock of Gibraltar, and from there you can see Morocco on the other side from Gibraltar, and then that right. was sort of the, the end of the known world, and, and anybody who goes exactly. beyond here, what was it? Uh, dragons, beware the dragons are out there. Or something. Nec plus ultra was supposedly written on a rock at, at the rock of Gibraltar, yeah. None further beyond. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Uh, what about Malta? Because Malta has all sorts of mystique about vanished population and ancient ruins. Well, Malta, you know, if you've been to Malta, you know that it is this sort of weird, mysterious place. It's a fortress, an island fortress that was built by the Knights of Malta, sort of a you know, mysterious group that goes back to the you know, 16th century as sort of the guard for the Pope and, and had this private army on this island. And it also has these temples that go back you know, four or 5,000 years, you know, these extraordinary buildings that are, it's like Stonehenge, but it underwent cell division, you know, so it's like Stonehenge times four, Stonehenge times six. And like Stonehenge, they line up with the solstices and mm-hmm. lights, shoots down passages and does crazy things like that. And this goes, you know, way back. It's it's the earliest known civilization in the Mediterranean, I believe. And that's amazing because this is a little island halfway between uh, Sicily and Africa, right? Right. A very small island. And at least once in antiquity, the entire island was wiped out, quite likely, by some sort of earthquake and flood. So that would line up. Earthquake that and flood. That would line up with Plato's story, exactly. Okay. So Agadir, I can buy Agadir. I could go to Santorini and think about Atlantis. And I could also be fascinated by the connections with Malta. I don't get the southern Spain connection because it's not an island. And why is southern Spain in the running for the location of Atlantis? The interesting thing is the, the word Plato uses for island is Nisos, like Peloponnesos. It doesn't necessarily mean an island completely surrounded by water. It could mean like a peninsula. It could mean a piece of land that is mostly surrounded by water. Southern Spain, in an area called Doñana National Park, which is famous for bird watching, it floods half the year, so the birds come in there on their migration to Africa. It's quite beautiful. But it's filled with silt from the Guadalquivir River. Under that silt, it's generally believed there may be a lost city called Tartessus, which is mentioned by Aristotle. It's mentioned maybe in the Bible under a different name. Historians generally think that Tartessus exists, and that is the best location for it. Now, if Tartessus turns out to be the inspiration for Atlantis, if Atlantis is just Tartessus under another name, that would be the place. And I, I think that is, if not the most likely spot, it's, it's certainly there's none better. I think when we consider all of this, it's really important to remember that from a 21st century perspective, it's hard for us to adequately appreciate how advanced civilizations were 1,500 years before Christ. I mean, there was a lot oh. going on that we just can't hardly fathom. 
Yeah, yeah. And a lot of it is underwater now because the water levels have continued to rise over the years. And, you know, a lot of what we just, we don't understand. It's like, you know, trying to look into a different dimension. In your book, uh, Mark, I thought it was funny when you mentioned anyone with a .edu email barely returns your questions because there's so many <laughs> nut jobs looking for Atlantis. Did you gain any respect for these people that are dedicating so much energy to finding this city? And uh... I did. I did. You know, and, you know, a lot of these people, I, I didn't talk to, well, I did talk to some just flat out kooks. But, you know, the people I spoke to were just, you know, dedicated amateurs who really were interested in this, did all the reading, were skeptical. And eventually I I did get some, you know, real experts to talk to me, you know, the the people who were genuinely interested in, in, you know, finding out the truth. And, you know, secretly off the record, you know, they're as interested as anybody else. Right. You know, but they, they can't they can't, can't come out and say it because they can't come out of the closet. <laughs> exactly. They'll they'll lose their government funding if they come out and start talking about Atlantis. You know, but you get a couple of drinks into them and they're like, <laughs> that's that's the trick. Get an archaeologist <laughs> drunk and then you can talk about it. <laughs> exactly. And a century ago, there was this sort of passion, this mania for lost great cities. You had Troy, yeah. Gnosis, Chichen Itza, the Absolutely. Valley of the Kings and Luxor, El Dorado, Machu Picchu, you name it. Uh, so it is. it does have a romantic allure to an archaeologist, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And if if anybody found Atlantis, I think the chances are slim that it's going to turn up in a form that could be recognized. But if they did find it, that would be the greatest archaeological discovery of all time. That would be exciting. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Mark Adams, and his book is Meet Me in Atlantis. Mark, it's fascinating to me that the only real hard evidence we have of this is the Greek philosopher Plato writing a little bit about it in two different books. Is that is that what all these Atlantologists are going by, is, is simply the writings of Plato, or is there any other ancient evidence? You know, there isn't much ancient evidence, which is why archaeologists tend to center on the idea that Santorini may have inspired Atlantis because there's actual pottery there, there's actual geological evidence there. You know, everything else is speculation based on, you know, ancient oral histories that were eventually written down and things like that. Anyone who writes about Atlantis, and there are all kinds of crazy ideas out there and half-crazy ideas, It's all traced back to Plato. Plato is the only original source for any talk about Atlantis. Hmm. You know, you mentioned the the Donovan song. The lyrics to that song, which are kind of weird and Mm -hmm. spacey, they all come out of a book written by a Minnesota congressman in the 1880s named Ignatius Donnelly, who sort of cherry-picked ancient history and, you know, weird pseudoscience theories and and put together this 500-page book called Atlantis, the Antediluvian World. And that's the book that gives us the idea that Atlantis was an island on the bottom of the ocean. Plato never says that, but Donnelly decided that the Azores were actually the tops of the mountains that had been the island of Atlantis. How he got that idea, I'm not sure. Now, there is a guy you write about named Tony O'Connell, who's the founder of Atlantopedia. Yes. Tony is, you know, that that rare, wonderful thing that you come across as a writer, which is the dedicated amateur expert. Now, his Atlantopedia, is that like Wikipedia for people looking for Atlantis? It's kind of like that. It's online. It's atlantopedia.ie, and it's got thousands of entries. Anything that's ever been connected to Atlantis, from the craziest conspiracy UFO theory to, like, the most serious textual analysis of Plato in Greek, hmm. you will find on Tony's Atlantopedia. <laughs> you know, these guys are, are just 
regurgitating the same little tiny scraps of evidence to see what they can come up with. And it seems part of your quest is to follow their quest as well as to look for Atlantis. Well, it was. I mean, the interesting question you always ask these people is why? Why are you looking for Atlantis? You know, because a lot of them devote a good chunk of their lives to it. And, you know, the only answer I could come up with was because I want to be the one to solve the mystery. Oh, it's like finding the source of the Nile or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I want to be the one. I want to have that feather in my cap. You know, and it's always some weird thing in their childhood Ah, that snags them. You know, I went and talked to this physicist in Germany named Reiner Kuhne who wrote a paper for the the archaeological magazine Antiquity, which is, you know, one of the most respected. And I asked him, I said, you know, Reiner, where did you get the idea to start looking into Atlantis? And he goes over to the wall and he says, I have it right here. And I thought he was going to pull down some sort of physics journal. And he pulls something down and it's a copy of Scrooge McDuck Goes to Atlantis. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Great. I put all the way here for this. (laughs) I'm in the middle of Braunschweig, Germany, because (laughs) you found a copy of Scrooge McDuck Goes to Atlantis. But it's always some weird little thing like that that sets people off. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Mark Adams. His book is Meet Me in Atlantis. Mark, you can uh, wonder where is Atlantis and so on, but of the four places we talked about, just from a travel point of view, which one did you enjoy most uh, just to be at? Agadir, Malta, Santorini, or the south of Spain? You know, they're all very nice. I have to say, as a, as a place to just visit and relax, and if you could do it in a little bit shoulder season, off season, Santorini is mm-hmm. just, you know, mind-bogglingly beautiful. And it's um, mobbed with cruise ship travelers in the day, but early and late in the day, oh, it's just it's just so peaceful. That sunset from the top of the oh. crater when all the cruise ships are sailing away. And those blue roofs in Ia down at the end of the island, it's just, you know, if you can get there at a time when it's not so crowded, it is just spectacular. And then when the sun's just right after, a, like, four glasses of ouzo, if you squint your eyes just <laughs> right, hail Atlantis. Ah... All right, Mark Adams, thanks so much, and uh, fascinating work. Meet me in Atlantis. Thanks for having me. Hail Atlantis. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Kaz Hall, and Donna Bardsley. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Read what Rick's been thinking about lately on Facebook and Twitter, and you can find out more about our guests each week on our website at ricksteves.com radio. We'll look for you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. I've found that if you equip yourself with good information and expect yourself to travel smart, you can. And that's why the Rick Steves Guidebooks are consistently the best-selling series of guides to Europe. Pick up the latest edition at your favorite bookseller or at ricksteves.com.